Welcome to episode 68 of Spinal Tap Minute, the podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and Stonehenge wrong size the movie This is Spinal Tap, one magnificent minute at a time. I'm Heidi Bennett of HeidiBennett.com. And I'm Sean German of 5MinutesOfMime.com. And with us today is a very special guest. We have with us author Sean Carlin. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, really, really excited to have you here for uh, for a really exciting minute. We got a lot going on. We're here to talk about Minute 68 of the movie This Is Spinal Tap. Minute 68 starts with Nigel smashing his guitar in a fit of peak and storming off the stage. We end with David speaking with Marty and listing some of the other former bandmates that he won't be missing. Mm-hmm. And in between, we get a little bit of an interview between David and Marty discussing Nigel's departure. So we're starting with, uh, we're mid-performance here, mm-hmm. where Spinal Tap is performing Sex Farm. <laughs> you know, what's, what's so great about that, just, just the opening seconds of this particular minute is that, you know, even in a movie that was kind of heavily improvised and heavily, you know, the narrative of it was heavily discovered in the editing room, there are still some conventional setups and payoffs. And this is a great example of one because they set up earlier in the film, Nigel's wireless, you know, guitar I guess it connects to his amplifier and it just allows him to do it wirelessly. Right. And this is this is really the payoff of that because the, the the wireless transceiver just kind of gets interference or picks up a transmission from the military base and completely screws up the whole show. I mean, basically to the point where it finally pushes this guy over <laughs> the edge. So it's really it's it. I think it's in some respects it's an underappreciated moment because again, in in the midst of all the silliness and the humor and the kind of loose improvisational style of the movie, it, it's there's good screenwriting going on there because it's a it's a it's a payoff to something that you didn't necessarily even know had been a setup earlier in the movie. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's like the uh, what's it called? Where so you Chekhov's see a radio transceiver, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, really good point. Um, yeah, and also I was just noticing that we get back the Bob's big boy pants that he's wearing. <laughs> he's got his big boy pants on, and bless yeah. that guy too for for having the confidence to wear that and the physique to pull it off. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, what I noticed in this explosive minute, you know, besides the withering stares between him and Jimmy mm-hmm. as he steps off, is that there's also, like, maybe a wayward fan that somehow figured out this gig because there's a guy standing there just off stage that has the Spinal Tap t-shirt on and a yeah. cowboy hat and... Well, I was wondering where the heck he came from. <laughs> right? Yeah, he doesn't seem like he belongs there. It doesn't seem like anybody at this Air Force base has even heard of Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm wondering. I I think is he a is he like a um a roadie? I don't know. I want. I don't oh, know if that's Moker, but I think that's somebody with the band because yeah, like you said, he he's got the shirt on in this like you know quick impromptu replacement gig. 
but also he's got the cowboy hat. So I'm wondering if he was shopping with Nigel and Janine. Right. We saw their hats earlier. Maybe he was in that 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 montage that didn't exist that I, I fantasized <laughs> well, You know, about. and that's the thing about this movie is there's so much deleted footage from it. I mean, I remember years ago having the Criterion Edition Laserdisc of this movie, and I swear there's like two or three hours of cut scenes. And then a couple of years later, when the Laserdisc format sort of faded into oblivion and they released the film on DVD, and then the DVD's got two or three hours of cutscenes, and I swear there are no overlaps. And I just remember watching it thinking, my God, there was so much footage that they cut. And you do see sometimes a little evidence of cut subplots. I mean, most famously, the cold sores that mm-hmm. the guys have on their lips right. earlier in the movie at the you know release party. But... You never know, like, what little elements. And you're, you're right. There could certainly have been a scene where they all went shopping for cowboy hats that just <laughs> never made it in. But there's this little, like, ghost of that subplot left over in the movie. Yeah, you, again, I, I kind of feel like I say this with every guest, but, like, you you joined us at a very interesting spot here where, <laughs> where Nigel's taking off, Janine is kind of sitting on the sidelines, mm-hmm. and in her Australia, one of her new <laughs> Australian nightmare outfits. <laughs> yeah, I was, was like an Australian's nightmare. <laughs> point that out too, because I guess I think, and I went back quickly. I think she was wearing like a jacket or a coat in the previous minute when they were first walking mm-hmm. in, you don't really get to see the outfit until now when, uh, when Nigel walks off, he walks off between Janine and, and the other, and the guy in the cowboy hat, we get our first good look at her, very purple outfit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time purple. A lot of purples and pinks in this movie. Well, that's kind of celestial, celestial too. Oh, you know, right. it seems like something that somebody that follows the the stars alignments and astrology and stuff. Mm-hmm. That seems, I think particularly seems on brand. <laughs> it, it, totally on brand, and particularly at that time where you know maybe astrology wasn't even quite as mainstream, even as it is today, where it really would have been seen as kind of a fringe interest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. But it's very nice. I, I get a, a kind of a genie vibe from mm-hmm. uh, from the top, from the... It's not quite three. It's not like a short sleeve. It's not a three quarter sleeve. It's just a little bit above the elbow. It's an interesting cut. And the feather in her hair mm-hmm. is purple. It matches the outfit. So she's very coordinated today. Looking very Oh, good. I remember those. The roach. <laughs> like they had. I remember being clip. in high school. You wear roach, roach clips in your hair with feathers on them. And I didn't even like smoke weed or anything. It just it was it was a fashion, you know, thing. Right. Fashion. We got you. <laughs> I mean, the, the you know, the 80s sort of fashion palette was pretty unique in and of itself. And I think the movie did, actually did a great job of sort of capturing that that rock and roll excess. You know, all these artists, particularly in the hair metal era, kind of expressing themselves through what they wear and just trying to make it more outrageous than the last thing they wore. And oddly enough, like the, the costuming, as weird as it is, is really reflective of all the guys' personalities. I mean, David always wears something that's vaguely kind of regal, and Derek mm-hmm. wears a lot of black leather, and, and Nigel wears a lot of these kind of skin-tight vinyl suits. You know, it's weird. It, almost like diving suits, in a way. Yeah. Uh, 
So it's they were they were I mean this is how well these guys knew their characters that even down to the ridiculous costuming they stayed consistent um, and not just in the confines of the movie but then later when the band kind of stepped out of the movie and was allowed to exist in reality and they released Break Like the Wind and they released Back from the Dead they they still were very consistent with the with the characterization of those of those um, musicians they played. Yeah, so speaking of all those different iterations, what is your uh, relationship to the movie? When did you, you know, first hear, you know, see it or any anything related to the movie you'd like to share your well, personal experience? Yeah, I was, uh, I would say like probably 89, 90 when I was in junior high school, my best friend introduced me to it. Because at that point, the movie had kind of become kind of like a VHS cult phenomenon, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it had been this thing that that had found not even a second life on VHS. I mean, it really kind of found its first life uh, yeah. only on home video. And and it was sort of being passed around as this thing you got to see. And I had a friend in junior high school who said, well, you've got to watch a show. And this friend of mine was was really instrumental in introducing me to a lot of music, a lot of the music that I, I came to love. He, he kind of mentored me in that respect. And he, he introduced me to this movie and... I was as taken with it as anybody. I mean, it was it was and is the funniest movie I've ever seen. And as fate would have it, you know, so this was right around 1990, mm-hmm. give or take. And then and then next thing you knew, you know, Break Like the Wind was coming out mm-hmm. a year or two later. So it was this really weird. I, the movie really appealed to something in me that I think has only be, kind of become popular in the last couple of years, which is this notion that that fictional characters can exist in the real world. And which again, you see it all the time now. I mean, that's what the whole Colbert report was about. I mean, that's what Stephen right. Colbert did so brilliantly. He played a fictional character, except the fictional character did not exist within a narrative framework. It existed in reality. And um, that to me was the brilliance of Spinal Tap because I had never seen anything like that. I had, it really is to me the, the, the greatest and longest running act of performance art that's ever been committed because you have these guys that have now played these characters longer than even the fictional history of the band in the movie. <laughs> they, they, they've like doubled that amount of time at this point and they've, they've released albums and they played concerts and they go on David Letterman and they do it completely in character. And the, the brilliance of that kind of comedy to me is that the audience has to be complicit in it. I remember um, right around the time Break Like the Wind came out, uh, uh, Michael McKeon appeared on the Dennis Miller show. Dennis Miller had a very short-lived talk show in the early 90s. And and it was one of the few times McKeon spoke out of character about the movie, at least at that point. I think they do. They speak out of character a little more now than they used to. But he said, you know, when we're on stage, you know, playing, he goes, it's so absurd. And the message that we're taking from the audience is, hey, we're here pretending to be Spinal Tap fans because we know you're only pretending to be Spinal Tap. And that, to me, was the genius of what Spinal Tap did and later what Stephen Colbert did, which was that it was a kind of performance art that was only made possible because the audience was willing to say, 
yeah, we know this is an act, but we're willing to participate in it. We're willing to pretend you're really a heavy metal band or with Stephen Colbert, we're willing to pretend you're a conservative pundit because right. it's just funny. Mm -hmm. You know, unlike Sacha Baron Cohen's comedy, not to take away from Sacha Baron Cohen, but if you look at his kind of comedy, his comedy is dependent on an unwitting audience. You know, right. the, the people he goofs on don't understand they're being goofed on. But with, with Spinal Tap... Uh, it was it was a kind of comedy and a, a, a that I had just never seen and it really really resonated with me and it's the reason I've been a fan my whole life and it's the reason I'm glad Spinal Tap has kind of continued to exist uh, all these years later. It's just again it's the longest running act of performance art I, I think probably ever. Yeah, I love the way that you put that and you're right and and I just just hearing you talk about it makes me understand more about my my affection for it too. You know, like, oh yeah, why why is this and it is uh, just something fun that we get to participate into that whole inclusion thing. Like you're not making fun of us. We're all in on this together and and so we become performers in our own way and that, that we're that's getting exactly into right. Them, you know? They make the audience kind of performers, too, in the whole joke, because, again, you have to be complicit in it. it you know, if, if we just look at Spinal Tap and go, oh, it's just a joke and those guys are just comedians and not really musicians, then the whole the whole illusion falls apart. But what's brilliant about the illusion is that we have all collectively agreed to pretend we're all making believe. And, and I that's certainly the the line between. Fiction and reality has become much more blurred in our new millennium. <laughs> you know, no kidding. You know where you've got grown adults like cosplaying, and, yeah. and you have all this crazy stuff going on, and and you know, and so so nowadays it's not. You would look at the comedy and and not understand why it was revolutionary, but any work of art has to be judged within the context of the time it was created. And you really have to look at Spinal Tap and and appreciate how innovative it was. Innovative in the sense that it it pioneered the mockumentary format, which is now all over television. I mean, most comedy shows, most sitcoms are done in that format. It it pioneered the whole this whole kind of metafictional reality where, again, you have fictional characters that exist in and interact with the real world. And the real world just just tacitly pretends like it's it's for real, even though we know it isn't. And that's what's funny about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for sharing all that stuff. And and as we gaze upon this minute and move, I guess, past that first scene, then it looks like they're back at an airport. Uh, where, where, where David's being interviewed? Yeah. It's either an airport or possibly a hotel lobby. I mean, right. it might be the, it might even be the Bonaventure hotel lobby, which they, you, they did an exterior shot of earlier in the movie. Right, um, right. Because I know the film shot all around LA. It's funny, LA doesn't really look like what it looks like in the movie anymore. Not really. So it's sometimes hard to identify some of the locations, but yeah, it's either, I, it might be a hotel lobby because it looks like there are kind of baggage carrier carts in the background. And, um, right. But I love yeah, this. Scene. Yeah, you're right. I didn't notice that before, but you're right. I'm looking yeah. at it right now. Yeah. What do you love about this scene? <laughs> well, what I, you know, what I particularly love about these particular scenes, and it's part of the reason I was excited to do these minutes, which is that as as hilarious as the movie is and as patently absurd as so much of it is, there's real dramatic weight to these scenes. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, there's real depth to what's going on. And, and again, I think that because these guys didn't play these characters as a goof, because they played them like real people, you know, the, the friendship between David and Nigel and the tension that arises when Janine kind of inserts herself into this professional relationship, it, there's a real pathos to it. And you can see David, you know, you see it in his face in this scene. And I think part of the fact that they played these characters like real guys is what allowed for the joke to sort of step out of the confines of the movie right. and, and, and become what we were talking about a minute ago. It, you know, become this kind of larger cultural metafictional commentary in a way um, because again they played it so real and I think that the movie if without these scenes the movie is a very funny satire of rock and roll culture but it, it wouldn't have it wouldn't really have any uh, teeth it wouldn't really have any emotional resonance to it without some of these scenes so I I, I think this uh, th- this breakup scene is you know the, or this breakup sequence is an important turning point in the movie and and once again you know you, you got to give kudos to all these actors particularly Michael McKean here who who well you, you appreciated uh, Nigel's frustration in the previous scene and you, you appreciate uh, McKean's He's just at his wit's end in this scene. And I love that line about how, you know, I'd, I'd feel much worse if I wasn't under such heavy space. <laughs> because once again, they never lose sight of the comedy, even in even in the 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 kind of depths of their personal despair. <laughs> yeah, and I totally agree with everything you said. And I think, yeah, what do you do when you're when this happens and mm. a documentary is being filmed at the same time and you right. wanna you don't wanna lose lose your cool and just all of a sudden instead of like maybe to save face or something, he's like, Oh yeah, well, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Just another tour, another, you know, another guitarist. We've had X amount of, you know, musicians drift through our transom and, right. <laughs> and here's just another one and just acting like it's no big deal when of and, course it is. You know? Yeah, and and even Marty DeBerge senses it's a big deal because you see on his face, like he's not enjoying this. I mean he he's aware that he has now bared witness to something that's potentially catastrophic for this band. And that was not his intention when he started to do this documentary. I mean, talking about, again, within the within the fictional construct of the movie, he, he really wanted to do a documentary about a band he loved. He did not want to be the one documenting its downfall. And, and now they've kind of reached that moment where it's it's gotten pretty dire for these guys. Yeah. And, and this kind of this turn of events, we see the way it works into into the structure of the film, going back to the the comments you made, Sean, about you know just about the the filmmaking that mm-hmm. we've seen seen the comedy coming from just all the things that go wrong and all the disasters at each stop along the tour, <laughs> and there has been kind of a, a build up that mm-hmm. that things get more serious. You you, you know look, thinking back to. Though we didn't, you know, we don't always get a scene immediately after of, of the band's reaction. But thinking about like Derek getting caught in the pod or something like that, and, and how they react versus mm-hmm. how did they react to the Stonehenge incident? Um, we certainly know none of those earlier things caused anyone to walk off or anyone to quit. And so first we saw Ian walk off, and now we've you know we've we've seen the built up in Nigel. We've seen the changes. In, in his mood, in his expression. And it's it's another 
you know, another unfortunate accent that we can laugh at as an audience, but mm-hmm. also as a character inside this, his reaction is going to be different. And he's finally reached the point where he's had it and, and he's going to walk off. And then you see, you know, first we see David's reaction, the look on his face on stage when it happens. Yes. There's a little bit, I sensed a little bit of resignation. Like he's not, he's not surprised. He's not bewildered. He's not, you know, I didn't see anything that's like, oh my God, you know, I'm in the middle of a performance and one of the performers has left and and what am I going to do? What I just see is like just frustration and disappointment and like, oh no, now I got to, you know, now I got to do one more thing I got to deal with. That's yeah. that's the expression I, I see at the moment when it happens. And now here he's just, you know, now <laughs> he's, he's, he's off up. stage, he's back in the real world and he's he's not going to deal with it. He's going to say this is just like, yeah, it's just like Ronnie Pudding or, or, or Denny Upman <laughs> or Little Schindler or any, any of the other musicians that they've they've played with throughout the years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is a guy who isn't at this point even looking to sort of salvage what's gone wrong. It's just he he's kind of been broken. I mean, Nigel got broken and had one reaction and David finally reached his breaking point and had a much more subdued but but no less severe reaction to what's going on. I mean, yeah, they just this is this is the lowest moment for these guys in this film for sure. Yeah. So, well, speaking of this moment, is there anything particular about this moment that we further want to comment on before we wrap up episode 68? Uh, well, one thing I wanted to ask Sean, just not mm-hmm. to put you on the spot, but one of the things that we we sometimes ask our guests is mm-hmm. if they have any other documentaries, uh, musical or uh, rockumentaries, if you will, that they would recommend to our audience. Yeah, I mean, you might appreciate this, Sean. Uh, you know the band Extreme, Boston-based band, yes. you know, which is why I mentioned them, uh, most most notably uh, well-known for More Than Words. They actually mm-hmm. just released a, a live Blu-ray of their Pornography album, you know, which was their breakthrough album. And they did a, a, a live 25th anniversary concert in sequence, as a lot of bands are doing now with some of their their breakthrough albums. And on the Blu-ray, uh, there's a 140-minute documentary about the making of the album and the history of the band. And it's a great documentary, but it's actually very specifically relevant to these scenes that we're talking about. Because at one point in the documentary, the band addresses its mid-90s breakup. And there was some really interesting insights because as a fan of rock and roll, you know, I've always wondered why is it these bands like Aerosmith, like Van Halen, you know, like Guns N' Roses, why when they're at the height of their fame and their popularity, can they not seem to hold it together? Why do they always break up? Just as Spinal Tap has kind of reached this same moment in this Mm -hmm. scene we're talking about. And one of the things Nuno Betancourt explains, and it really shed light on the whole thing for me, and I I think it's probably true of a lot of bands, even though he's only speaking for his own band, was that he explains that they were operating at that point at such a frenetic pace. You know, they were putting out so much music, they were touring constantly, and they were getting burned out. And they were getting irritated with each other, as you would expect. And what one of the things Nuno said was, if we had had better management, 
they would have said to us, hey, guys, you know you can take a break, right? You can take a year off and recharge your batteries. You don't have to keep going at this pace. He goes, but we were young. We didn't know that. And nobody told us that. So in our view, we had two options. We could keep going at this pace until we just burned out and the whole thing exploded. Or we could just call it quits right there, just break up and walk away from each other. You know, we didn't realize that there was a kind of middle option. So the option we chose was just to break up and go our separate ways. Obviously, years later, they wound up reconciling as many bands do. But for me, it really sort of shed a lot of light on maybe why this happens, because you have, you know, greedy managers or just bad managers who mismanage you and who who basically milk the cash cow a little too hard and you know and then you wind up in a situation where a band uh breaks up and uh, so for that reason i thought that documentary it's on the extreme pornography live 25 blu-ray uh, i thought the documentary was great uh and and in addition to being specific to extreme it, it wound up kind of sort of illuminating one of the greater mysteries of modern rock which is why do all these great bands <laughs> constantly break up <laughs> that's yeah. a great recommendation yeah thanks i uh, and and by the way it's a great live awesome. album too i mean the band cool. sounds better than ever i mean gary sharon's vocals are just tip top nuno betancourt's guitar work is is i mean he's one of the best so it's a it's a great live recording and and a great documentary that accompanies it yeah, that's cool. great. Thanks. I I know I had heard about. It. I wasn't able to uh, to catch the show. I, I heard about them getting back together, but uh, mm. it's nice to know that that yeah, that's out on you know that's out on home video and that they have that documentary along with it. That sounds they, really good. Yeah, I actually caught. I did see them live last year, last May at the uh, at the Hampton Beach Casino Ballroom. They were great. Mm. Yeah, terrific show. Sweet. Great. Yeah. Cool. So Heidi, do you have anything else for? Uh, Minute I don't 68. think so. I've got a few thoughts on minute sixty nine. Which, mm-hmm. um, Sean, are you willing to come back and hang out with us for for episode sixty nine? Yeah, I would love to because I got a lot to say about that one too. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never well, short of things to say. <laughs> Great. I'm glad that you're aboard and and helping us along through this. Um, when it, we've got this rough stuff happening, like members leaving the band and, you know, management leaving and stuff. It's good to have a supportive team here. So glad you're part of our our uh, Spinal Tap Minute crew for, for this minute and the next minute. So yeah. we'll wrap this up. And then what? I, one thing I was just going to mention, um, you know, thanks everybody for, for joining us for episode 68. And, and I am, Sean and I can talk about this maybe, you know, in the next few minutes coming up, the next few episodes. But, you know, as this, as this podcast wraps up, we both have other projects in the works. So I want to start putting a bug in your ear is that if anybody is a fan of the movie, The Cabin in the Woods, mm. the, the next movie that I'm going to go minute by minute with is The Cabin in the Woods. That's a good one. Yeah, I like it. It's funny. It's weird. It's twisted. It's scary. And and there's a lot of stuff to kind of uncover. And so uh, my friend Molly Balin and I are going to be doing that. We're going to be doing it a little bit different than than this one. So, you know, I'll just tease that. But 
The website's not up yet, but we are Cabin Minute Cast on Twitter and on Instagram. So if you're interested in following us, it's Cabin Minute Cast. So I'll just throw that out there for now. And um, yeah, and I think that's it for me. Yeah, so so looking forward to that. So I also recently announced a movie I'm going to be doing, uh, not immediately, but coming up uh, probably early 2018, and that is Groundhog Day. Oh, one of my favorite movies, and I think yep. um, sort of Spinal Tap like, not certainly not not a, a documentary, but a, a movie that's primarily thought of as a comedy. But I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of depth to it uh, depth as well. And- and the comedy doesn't necessarily come from one-liners, like mm-hmm. like Spinal Tap. It's more the situational and performance-based comedy. Right, right. So, uh, so that's coming up. And again, uh, just like Heidi, I don't have a website up yet, but do have a Twitter, and that's Groundhog Minute is the uh, the Twitter, and actually even got a, the Facebook group set up, and that's Gobbler's Knob. Is our, uh, <laughs> what else was it going to be? Well, of course, yeah, it, it is for the uh, the Groundhog Minute. Uh, it will be coming up in 2018. I'm glad Not you like sausage. That. Oh my and, uh, god! And so, Sean, yes. Sean C. If uh, so, if folks want to hear more from you or or hear more about your theories on on comedy and Spinal Tap, where can they find you? I write a lot of uh, uh, blog posts about uh, about movies, about screenwriting, about storytelling craft, and just the culture in general uh, at my website, seanpcarlin.com. And we have great conversations uh, in the comments and talk about all sorts of subjects. So uh, anybody is welcome anytime to come over and leave a comment, and I'm, I, I always engage. All right. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll link to that from uh, our website, uh, spinaltapminute.com, and We'll, we'll tweet it out as well so so folks can find you. Great. Thank you. Well, no, thank you. <laughs> and then a couple other things uh, I'll, I'll mention. Uh, for Heidi and myself, we've got some stuff coming up uh, more quickly, sooner, more immediately than <laughs> additional podcasts. And one of those is the Movie by Minutes Chicago get-together. I don't right. know if it's quite a convention. It's a one-day thing, and it's going to be Saturday, August 26th, and that is in Chicago, and you can find that. Uh, there's a website where you can get tickets and find out more information, and that's at moviesbyminutes.com slash Chicago, and there's a, it's kind of a, a two-parter. During the day, there will be, I guess, panels and talks about podcasting and, and how to do it if you're interested and kind of how the sausage get made kind of thing, and then later on in the evening is uh, a little bit more fun. I think there's going to be some live recordings, some podcasts and and other stuff. And so Heidi's going to be there from Spinal Tap Minute. There's going to be folks from Star Wars Minute, Indiana Jones Minute. I think uh, Back to the Future guys are going to be there and and many others. So if you're going to be in Chicago or if you can get to Chicago somewhere around August 26th, you might want to check that out. And then yeah, I'm excited. Then, uh, to meet yeah. up with folks out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed. Well, not kind of. I'm very disappointed, actually. I'm not going to be able to make it. Um, it sounds like a, a great thing. And I think it's going to be a good mix of a lot of the, the podcasters that are in this Movies by Minutes community, but also a lot of listeners as well. Uh, so there's a little bit something for, for everyone on both sides of, of the microphone. 
And then the other thing is, uh, I won't be in Chicago, but I will be in Worcester, Massachusetts, coming up on Saturday, June 24th. And that's for the massive Comic-Con. We're doing a panel on Movies by Minutes podcasting and a little bit of uh, how-to, and we'll answer questions on, uh, on how folks can get into it if they're interested. So that'll be myself and Rick from Mad Max Minute. And uh, we'll be there. And if you want to, certainly if you want to learn more about the process and maybe get into podcasting yourself, you should stop by. Or if you just want to say hi, if you're in the neighborhood. And again, that's going to be in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts on June 24th. So come on out and and say hi. Awesome. All right. So any other plugs for Minute 68? I'm all plugged out. I'm still trying to recover from Gobbler's Knob. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so Heidi and Sean and myself will all be back tomorrow. I hope the listeners out there, you'll be back as well. But until next time, and so say all of us, tap tap into America. (laughs) And it's going to be myself and um, uh, Rick from... And Mad Max Minute. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll edit that. We'll make it sound. <laughs> Rick yeah. from. Yeah. yeah. Take it uh, again. So that'll be myself and Rick from Mad Max Minute. <laughs>